Good morning, everybody. We're back uh, in our study in Job, and hopefully uh, the PowerPoint's going to work uh, smoothly today. Uh, let's rehearse a little bit of just where we have been in our study so far. We have uh, been wrestling with Job on this question, where is God when life uh, falls apart? How do I relate to God when he seems to be distant or unconcerned about me? Specifically, where is God and what is he up to when we have done nothing to push him away? But, but with Job, we have that sense, uh, oh, that I knew where I might find him so that I could come into his presence. Uh, God seems to have disappeared. This is uh, Job's experience and one that we've been following and uh, thinking about with him. So uh, let's get our PowerPoint up here and uh, follow along. Last week, we began to talk about this, uh, what uh, Tremper Longman and John Walton called the triangle of tensions in the book of Job. And of course, when the book starts, there is no tension. Everything to seems to be working smoothly. Uh, the retribution principle, as it's called, the idea that you uh, get what you have earned, that uh, God uh, has woven into the grain of the universe, the fabric of the universe, this principle that uh, righteousness is rewarded and uh, wickedness is punished. Uh, that seems uh, pretty deeply uh, part of the world. And uh, when we start the book of Job, that, uh, that principle seems fir firmly in place, and it seems to be working out in Job's life. Uh, Job is... Uh, the righteous man, uh, the man of high integrity, the blameless man, the one who fears God, and, uh, and Job invests his life in following, serving, loving God, and, uh, and God's justice then is played out through the retribution principle that Job gets what he has earned, you might say. Uh, he is wealthy, he's influential, he's highly regarded, and he's uh, healthy and happy. Uh, but that doesn't last long, because we then find out that uh, God and the adversary, the Satan, have a conversation, and the Satan says, you know, if, uh, if you took away all the blessings in Job's life, he would curse you to your face. And that sets up this book. The Satan is allowed to afflict Job in terrible ways in two stages. One, he loses his family and his wealth and possessions. And then secondly, he loses his health. Now, once that happens, the, uh, the triangle becomes uh, one of tension. Job's friends come, they sit with him, uh, they mourn with him, and then they start to, to talk with him. And, uh, and their feeling that the 
the tension is so severe that they have to somehow figure out a way to relieve that tension. And the way that they do it is to uh, question Job's righteousness. In their minds, they say, well, uh, the retribution principle is solid. Uh, you get what you earn. And uh, so that must mean that though Job looks like he's a righteous man, he certainly claims to be a righteous man. We've always thought of him that way, but he's having this terrible misfortune. That must be payback, uh, retribution for secret unrighteousness. So they try to resolve the tension in the triangle by saying, no, uh, the retribution principle does work. Job is, in fact, an unrighteous man. God is judging him in this. Now, of course, uh, Job uh, disagrees with that, and uh, he has to look a different direction. He feels the tension as well. And, and so what Job begins to do, uh, tentatively at first, but it gets stronger through the book, and in the section we're looking at today, it gets quite strong, that Job uh, knowing that he is righteous, and we as the readers, we know what the, the characters in the book don't know. We know about that dialogue between God and Satan. We know that Job really is a righteous man. And so, so Job, knowing himself that he's done nothing to bring his sufferings upon himself, begins to turn his attention toward the justice of God. And uh, that grows stronger, uh, that that Job is really questioning, is God just in the way he works in the world? So that's where we come uh, to this point. We've seen that each of the three friends of Job take a, uh, a bit of a shot at him, trying to help him to understand and to give their perspective on what has been happening. And uh, each one of them, Eliphaz first, then Job responds. And then uh, Bildad speaks, Job responds, and then Zohar speaks, Job responds again. That was what we got through last week. Uh, this week, uh, they do two more rounds of this alternate speaking against each other, except on the third round, Zohar has, has nothing further to say. So we don't hear from him the third time. What I've done to try to pull some stuff together is just take a, a, a number of themes that I think are important in this section so let's try to uh, understand what uh, is taking place. I'm going to call this deadlock because uh, once you work through these chapters, uh, everybody's pretty entrenched. Do uh, Job is, uh, is solidly where he started, and uh, the friends are increasingly frustrated with him because they feel he's not listening to what they say. <coughs> Let's start with Eliphaz again on the, the second round. Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, would a wise person answer with empty notions or fill their belly with the hot east wind? Would they argue with useless words, with speeches that have no value, which is how they evaluate what Job's been saying, useless words? But you even undermine piety and hinder devotion to God. Your sin prompts your mouth 
you adopt the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, not mine. Your own lips testify against you. Are you the first man ever born? Were you brought forth before the hills? Do you listen in on God's counsel? Do you have a monopoly on wisdom? What do you know that we do not know? What insights do you have that we do not have? The gray-haired and the aged are on our side, men even older than your father. Are God's consolations not enough for you? Words spoken gently to you? Why has your heart carried you away, and why do your eyes flash so that you vent your rage against God and pour out such words from your mouth? Uh, Job responds to Eliphaz, and then uh, Bildad steps in again and has some more critique. Bildad the Shuhite replied to Job, when will you end these speeches? Be sensible, and then we can talk. Why are we regarded as cattle and considered stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself to pieces in your anger, is the earth to be abandoned for your sake? Or must the rocks be moved from their place? And then back to Eliphaz. He replies, is it for your piety that God rebukes you and brings charges against you? Is it not, is not your wickedness great? Are not your sins endless? All right. So a lot of discussion that goes on there. There's a lot of repetition. It's part of the style of, uh, of ancient poetry and part of the way wisdom teachers talk. They, they liked to multiply good sounding words. So that's part of the style we Westerners are not used to. But let's pick up a few of the themes that we've just uh, read here. The three friends are in attack mode. Uh, they're not so uh, obviously friends and that's what Job's gonna feel. What do they say? Well, let's pick up Eliphaz's uh, critique here. Eliphaz says that Job undermines piety. Piety is the, the practice of religion, the practice of faith. Job undermines that, says uh, Eliphaz. And, and I think behind that is this retribution principle again, the idea that you get what you work for that the grain of the universe has been so formed by God that there is a payback mechanism. Uh, <clears throat> we saw last week that that retribution principle is certainly taught in scripture. You have it in uh, Moses in Deuteronomy when he says to Israel, you know, there's a way of blessing, there's a way of cursing. Obedience is the way of blessing. Blessing is the payback to living according to God's law. And uh, cursing, God's curse, is the payback for disobedience. So I put before you life and death, choose life. And uh, then we come to the, to the Psalms, which many of the Psalms are in this category of wisdom. And the first Psalm starts out, you know, 
Blessed is the man who uh, uh, meditates on God's word, does not walk the way wicked people walk, but he delights in the Lord and in the Lord's word. And uh, what's the result of that? Well, he's like a tree planted by the rivers of water. On the other hand, the wicked are not like that. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. So uh, obedience or disobedience has a direct uh, result, a direct payback. And then uh, the verse that's here on the screen is Galatians 6, 7. Uh, Paul understands this principle too. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. What a man sows, he reaps. So righteousness, you reap God's blessing. So unrighteousness, you reap God's judgment. And, uh, and so what Eliphaz is saying here uh, is, Job, uh, you have, uh, by your determined rejection of God's uh, judgment in your life, and you're maintaining that you are innocent and all this is undeserved, you are questioning not only God's judgment, but you're questioning this basic biblical principle, and that's going to be bad for you, but it's going to be bad for other people. You undermine uh, piety. Your influence, Job, is that uh, you're going off the path, and you are likely to lead other people in that same direction. Uh, you're going to undermine the religious faith and practice, not only of yourself, but of other people. Job undermines piety. Second thing that, that Eliphaz and Bildad both talk about is that Job is angry with God. And he's angry with his friends as well. They feel that. But, but more fundamentally, they say Job is angry with God. Uh, the way he talks about God, the way he expresses his frustration. And, uh, you know, Eliphaz is right on this. Bildad is right on this. They hear this in Job's talk. Job is frustrated. He's seeking for God, and he can't find God. Uh, so they have, they've got a point here. Job is in uh, not the healthiest place because he is angry with God. On the other hand, it is striking that when we come to the end of this book and God appears, Job gets his day in court as he's been asking for it. It's interesting that when that happens, God's response to Job is, and to the three friends, Job has spoken truly, and the three friends have not. Now, that's maybe helpful even to think about this issue of Job's anger, because uh, there is more than one kind of anger, right? We, we understand that. There's... Uh, there's occasionally anger that is justified. And, uh, and then there's, beyond that, there's, there's other types of anger. Let's, let's distinguish here what kind of anger Job has. Job's anger is not, as this picture suggests, unfortunately, uh, 
his anger is not the anger of someone who shakes his fist in the face of God and says, I refuse to acknowledge, worship, or serve this God. Uh, it's not the anger of someone who turns his back upon God, who gives up faith. It's not the anger of the agnostic or the atheist who wants to deny that God even exists. It's rather the anger and frustration of a man who is still pursuing God, but it's not working for him. He is serious about his relationship with God. He will not give that up. He holds fast to it. He even goes to the point of demanding that God give him an audience. Uh, so there's anger here. And in the end, uh, I think that's part of what Job ends up repenting from. But, but the reality is it's, it's not the anger of a rebel which is the way the friends hear Job's words. But it's not that. It's the anger of a man who wants to pursue God, who wants to come into God's presence, who wants to have a relationship with God. But everything he has done, and it seems like he's done the right stuff, uh, that's no longer working for him. Uh, so Job is angry, and he's angry at his friends because they won't listen to him and won't trust him and take seriously what he has to say. Well, uh, so what's the uh, prescription that Eliphaz and the other friends have for Job? Well, it's the same that we saw last week. They, uh, they pretty much have one string on their banjo and they keep playing it over and over again. Their assessment is that Job needs to repent of his sins. They're not sure actually, just what those sins are. They never do. I, they raise some suggestions, but they haven't seen these things. They are forced by their system, by the retribution principle, to assume that Job needs to repent of sins, even though they're not clear what they are. Uh, Eliphaz takes a, a shot at uh, in chapter 22. He says, uh, Job, is it for your piety that he rebukes you and brings charges against you? Is not your wickedness great? Are not your sins endless? How does he conclude that? Well, Job's sufferings are obviously great. Therefore, on the retribution principle, Job's sin must be great. And, uh, and then Eliphaz takes a few guesses on this. Verse 6, he says, you demanded security from your relatives for no reason. You stripped people of their clothing, leaving them naked. You gave no water to the weary, and you withheld food from the hungry. Though you were a powerful man owning land, an honored man living on it. And you sent widows away empty-handed and broke the strength of the fatherless. That is why snares are all around you, why sudden peril terrifies you, why it is so dark you cannot see, why a flood of water covers you. Well, there's the explanation. Uh, he's shooting in the dark, but he's guessing it's something like this. Those sins largely are sins of abusive power. And Job, we know, is a rich man, and he's got a lot of money, and, and 
Eliphaz assumes that because he has wealth and possessions and power, that he's been abusing that power. Uh, we know because we've heard that opening interview between God and the Satan. We know that's not the case. But uh, Eliphaz and his friends have to manufacture sins, and they have to assume then that the right thing for Job to do is to repent of those sins. And if he does that, then uh, Eliphaz is pretty encouraging in chapter 22, actually, that you will pray to him, he will hear you, and you will fulfill your vows. Uh, and light will shine in your way. So uh, very uh, evangelistic kind of preaching there that Eliphaz gives to Job. Well, what's Job's response to these fellows? I'm going to look mainly at uh, chapter 19 here because uh, I think chapter 19 is the high point of Job's responses, and he has a lot to say to his friends, but this is kind of the, the heart of it. Then Job replied, How long will you torment me and crush me with words? Ten times now you have reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. If it is true that I have gone astray, my error remains my concern alone. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. Though I cry violence, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end, he'll stand on the earth. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. And then after that, Zophar uh, replies to Job. Surely, you know how it has been from of old ever since mankind was placed on the earth, that the mirth of the wicked is brief, the joy of the godless lasts but a moment. Well, nothing new here from Zophar, right? That's uh, just a, a statement of the negative side of the retribution principle, that the mirth of the wicked is brief, the joy of the godless lasts but a moment. Chapter 21, verse 28, Job replies, you say, and he's talking about Zophar here, he said, you say, where now is the house of the great, the tents where the wicked lived? And his response is, have you never questioned those who travel? Have you paid no regard to their accounts, that the wicked are spared from the day of calamity, that they are delivered from the day of wrath? If uh, we were going to put that in, <clears throat> in modern parlance, the, uh, the question in verse 29, have you never questioned those who travel? Uh, we might say, uh, uh, Zophar, you don't get out very much, do you? Uh, haven't you observed what life is like across the world? Haven't you seen 
that wicked people prosper many times. They are spared from the very kind of judgments you claim uh, have to fall upon them. So uh, let's look a little bit at Job's counterattacks toward his friends. Well, here's a big one, friends. Job is saying in those verses we just looked at, his response to Zohar, the retribution principle often fails. Uh, it, it, it doesn't hit home. It doesn't hit the target. And of course, he sees himself as a case in point here. Uh, he doesn't deserve what has happened to him. That's what he maintains from beginning to right up to the time he meets with God. He is innocent of uh, anything that would explain the great suffering that he's encountered. And when he talks to Zohar, he doesn't just talk about himself, but he says, look, Zohar, you need to get out more. Haven't you heard about these situations? Haven't you seen places where wicked people are not judged at all? They prosper in life. They, uh, they've got their family surrounding them. They've got wealth. They're happy, and they go to their graves in peace. Haven't you seen that? And uh, the answer that Zophar should give and the friend should give is, yeah, that, that is a real problem. And we can feel that as well. You got thinking this week back to the 70s when, uh, when the Ugandan dictator Idi Amin was uh, in power. And during his relatively brief reign, about eight years, uh, he was responsible for the murder and torture of estimates are 300 to 500,000 people in Uganda, a nation of only about 12 million total people. And uh, what happened to Amin? Well, he was, uh, he was toppled from his power. He fled to Libya. And then from Libya, he fled to Saudi Arabia, where he lived out the next roughly 25 years of his life in, uh, in ease and died in ease. He was never called to account for all of that. That's the kind of thing that Job is raising as a problem for Zohar and the other friends. The retribution principle often fails. Now, this is interesting to think about. I guess we'll have to talk some more at a, a future time on this. But think about this. We've already seen that the retribution principle is uh, very much woven into Scripture, both Old and New Testament. And yet here is a book that is placed in the canon by whoever the people were that collected these materials together and gave us our Old Testament. Here is a book, uh, a major part of which is to bring us to question how that retribution principle works out. So it's almost that the canon of scripture gives multiple voices here and invites us into a dialogue, into a debate. How are we going to understand the way that God works in the world? And uh, that's something we're going to have to continue to think about and explore over the next few weeks. But that's a major point for Job. The retribution principle often fails, and he sees himself as a case in point. 
Secondly, big issue for Job is he cannot find justice. Uh, where is uh, the God who he is looking for, the God who is righteous and holy and who has built this retribution principle into the grain of the universe, what's, what's the problem then with Job? He calls out for justice. He wants his day in court. He wants to appear before God because he says, I want to know what he would say to me in this situation. Uh, in chapter 19 and verse 7, we read this verse. Though I cry violence, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. And here is the, the sharp point of Job's questioning about God and God's character. But uh, something we noticed last week is that that Job has multiple themes that actually seem to compete with each other, and that in Job we find uh, hope even amid despair. And I think, again, chapter 19 is like the, the mountain peak of all of this discussion for Job and all of his uh, inner conflict. So on the one hand, we find this bold, harsh statement, I call for help, there is no justice. But in that same chapter, we hear these words, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand on the earth after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, how my heart yearns within me. Job says he knows that God is still his Redeemer. He has said early on to his friends, God has fenced me in. He's in a cage. But his conviction is that God is eventually going to show up and deliver him. Uh, that's the idea of the Redeemer. The Redeemer is someone who brings deliverance. The same word for, uh, for God's character, Redeemer, is used in Exodus to refer to God as the one who is going to come and liberate his people from slavery in Egypt, to bring them out of captivity into the land of blessing and promise. The prophet Isaiah uh, uses the same word to talk about God, and uh, Isaiah looks ahead to the Babylonian captivity, and he says, God the Redeemer is going to come and liberate Israel once again from its uh, bondage. It's going to be like a new exodus where God will uh, raise his strong right arm and uh, bring deliverance to his people. So Job says he knows that that is true. I will see him in my flesh. There's a big debate on these verses as to whether Job is referring to something that will take place beyond death so that when he says, in my flesh, I will see God, is he talking about uh, some sort of notion of resurrection? Or is Paul saying, is Job saying that uh, God is going to appear to him before his physical death? 
while he's he's still in the body. Uh, I don't think we need to resolve that right now. Maybe we'll talk about that further at some uh, future point. Uh, the thing is right now that Job is living in spite of his frustration, in spite of his anger with God. He's living as someone who believes that God is going to act eventually. And that action is going to bring him deliverance from his uh, suffering. But even more than that, it's going to bring him that, uh, that justification, that vindication that he so much desires, the answer to the uh, slurs and attacks and the lies of his friends. Well, that's where we are at this point. The next time we get together, which will be in two weeks, uh, Wes is going to speak next week. But the week following, we're going to look at a new character who shows up in Job, uh, this fellow Elihu, and uh, he's got a couple long speeches. That's chapters uh, 32 to 37. If you get a chance to read them, read them and ask, uh, what is new here? What's different about Elihu's take? It's not easy to uh, sort through it, but it'll be a good challenge for you over these couple of weeks. Let's, uh, let's just summarize before we wrap up here. A um, couple of things. The three friends make no progress in understanding what's going on, in understanding Job, uh, in sympathizing with him. Uh, and that's because they start with the wrong assumptions. They assume they know how God works. God works by the retribution principle. And uh, they are so confident in knowing, thinking they know how God works, that they actually overlook things that are pretty obvious. And that's what Job calls their attention to. Zohar, uh, you don't get out much, do you? Uh, haven't you seen the fact that the wicked often are not uh, rewarded according to their wickedness, but they seem to prosper and have an easy life? Haven't you seen that? But uh, these men are very confident that they know how the world works and that they also know how God works. What about their faith? Do they believe in God? Well, yes, certainly they do. Do they say some good things about God and about uh, uh, truth? Yeah, uh, they do say some good things. But here's the difficulty. Their faith is a system of belief. And it's a system that allows them to know the truth. Last week, we talked about small t truth, right? Which is, is truth from a limited perspective. And that's what these guys have. Their faith is a system of belief. And the system says, seek God because it pays well to seek God. Uh, strangely enough, the three friends actually begin to affirm uh, a view of life in relation to God, which is very similar to what uh, the Satan says Job actually believes. That is, if you, you serve God because you get blessed by it. And the Satan says to God, yeah, but if, if you allow me to afflict Job, 
you'll find out what he's really made of. He's in here just for what he can get. Well, the friends really have a system that is pretty close to what Satan has identified. They say, seek God, repent Job, turn back to God, because that's the way you'll get your life back together. Now contrast that with Job. Job makes progress. He has a very difficult time, but he actually makes progress because he is seeking God. And what's clear is that Job's faith is not a principle, but it's a person. Job's faith is not in some abstract idea like the retribution principle. But his faith is in the living God, the one he says he knows is his redeemer, and he's pursuing God. To Job, knowing God is more important than his health or his possessions. We pointed out the other week, and I think it's good to keep in mind that through this whole long discussion, we never find Job saying to God, uh, I want my health back, I want my possessions back. I want my family back. What Job says is, God, I want to come before you. I want you to state that our relationship is intact. I'm being falsely accused of turning my back on you, of having some kind of secret sin, but I want to hear from you. I want to come into your presence. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. That's Job's cry. So maybe here's a good point for us to wrap up uh, this week. On what basis is your relationship with God? Is faith to you a system of belief? Is it saying, yes, I believe that God is the three-in-one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I believe that Jesus was, uh, came into the world to be the sin-bearer. Uh, I believe that through faith in him, I have my sins forgiven. I have a hope of heaven. Uh, is that the heart of your faith? Is it a system of belief? Or is your faith acknowledging those truths that we've just talked about? Is your faith one which is seeking after the living God? Are you growing in the knowledge of God? Are you pursuing him? That's what Job does. That's what sets him apart from his three friends. So uh, let's take that with us then in this week, reflect on that idea. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll say our goodbyes. Let's pray together. O oh Lord, the psalmist says, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Lord, we aspire to that same attitude ourselves. 
we want to want you more than we do. We reject the coldness of mere belief or orthodox teaching. We ask you for the warmth of a living relationship with you through faith in Jesus, your son, in whose name we ask these things. Amen. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.